you have a copy of God's Word, if you could take it and turn to Philippians chapter 3. So you see behind me the theme of our study through Philippians is that we are better together. We'll begin looking uh, into chapter 3 and ask uh, Paula Richwine to come and read our passage. She'll be reading from verse 1 to 11. Uh, Philippians 3. And if you have uh, one of the Bibles that you picked up from the back, it'll be page 678. So, Paula, come in and read for us this morning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have a reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Thank you, Paula. There there are two ways to be distant from God. There are two ways to live as if you don't need God. There are two ways to turn your back on all that Jesus has done. I'll never forget the impact on my heart when I realized that. When I saw two very different ways that lead to the very same result. We're pretty familiar I think in the church, we're pretty familiar with one of those ways. If you know some of the great stories in the Bible, you know of those where a person has decided to do things their own way. And they run from God. They kind of run towards sin. And then it ends up in a total mess. So I'm thinking of the story of the prodigal son. I'm thinking of the story of the lost sheep. I'm thinking of those stories of dramatic conversion. We're we're familiar with those. Where God accepts the messy and the broken. Those who have realized where they were headed to was awful and great news. God shows love to those that were distant and he brings them back home. So we are familiar with that way of being distant from God. But there is another way to be distant from God. And there is another way to live as if you don't need him. And I'm I'm pretty sure we don't emphasize that nearly as much. And that is 
not just to be bad, but actually to be good. To be religious. To behave yourself. To never mess up or just very rarely mess up. Like, how, how does that create distance from God? All too often when we think of ourselves as good and we have our act together, we easily become proud. We might even accept that God, like, throws the old lifesaver out and that person who can't seem to get their act together, that friend, that family member, we're grateful that God shows grace to them because, boy, they need it. And we, we recognize it's a good thing that God has a lot of grace because we can think about five or six or 10 or 25 people that he's going to have to have a lot of grace to put up with them. But if the tables were turned and we were to say, yeah, but is that same grace required for you? Required for him to work in your life? If we were to be honest, and we should be, right? If we were to be honest, I would guess a lot of us would go, ah, I don't know that it's the same amount of grace. I, 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 try, I try to live right. And in that moment, we're distant. We're distant from grace. We're distant from God. And, and it's somewhat more complicated, not, certainly not to God, but for us to see God actually go to work on, on that second category of people. But this is what God is very good at. God is very good at breaking down both kinds of people. Who are distant from him. God has a way of, of meeting us. So I especially want us today to be open in our hearts to see if God might be working on us because this passage especially speaks to that second way of being distant from God. Can we dig into it? So verse 1 says, you know, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This is not, this is not a new command for Paul. Paul says this previously in, in Philippians. He'll say it again. He says this pretty regularly. God wants us to have joy in the Lord. And then there is this warning in verse 2 about things that could sidetrack that joy. Beware of dogs, which was a, a very like, not-so-nice label. So Paul's not, not playing games here. Beware of evildoers. Beware of those who... Mutil- the, mutilate those that so butcher the faith of what God has come to do. Beware of those. And then he begins to speak of the true people of God, and and he uses the label, the circumcision, which takes us back into the Old Testament. The Old Testament people of God often had this label, this is the true people of God. And and he says, these are the, this is the, the circumcision, these are the true people of God, these are the ones who truly worship, these are the ones who ascribe value and meaning and worth to God, these are the ones who do so, and they do so by the Holy Spirit of God, not by their own power. And they do so as they glory in Christ Jesus, not as they boast in their own work and in their own accomplishments. And then he says at, at the end there of verse 3, they put... These are, the, these are the ones who truly worship. They actually put no confidence in the flesh. They put no confidence in the flesh. But then it's almost as if Paul gets hypothetical on us and says, but if you want to see what confidence in the flesh might look like to a person in the Jewish culture of the day, this is what it would look like. 
You want to know what confidence in the flesh would look like for someone that lived in Jewish culture? This is what it would look like. And so we get verse 4. He says, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. Like if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I'm, I promise you I have more. That is, what, that is what Paul is saying. True worshipers don't go down this road, but if we want to play that game, for hypothetical, let's play that out and look what, look what it means to have confidence in the flesh. He says, though I, I myself, I, I have reason, right? Circumcised on the eighth day, exactly as God commanded. I'm of the people of Israel, the chosen people of God. I'm of the tribe of Benj- Benjamin, one of the leading tribes. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As for the law, I'm a Pharisee, and we go, well, that, that's a, like a, a negative term. I'm not when this is written. This means he was the one that was like really devoted, the person that's like super devoted, committed to their faith. That's Paul. As to zeal, I, I took care of business. I mean, I, I was going to take care of God and his work, and I was going to move it forward, even if it meant persecuting the assembly around Jesus. As to righteousness under the law, nobody found any problem with me. I was blameless. I think what Paul's doing... Matter of fact, I'm I'm confident what he's doing is he is pushing for the Philippians to think through this. Where is your confidence? So I think that's why we get the exercise of like Paul's list of all his achievements. Is he's pushing the Philippians and then I think by extension us to ask, where is your confidence? For Paul and his confidence, at least in the past, it was this list of things that he trotted out. Some of which he had no choice in that matter, right? So he's of the people of Israel. He's circumcised the eighth day. He's, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He had nothing to add to that, but he, he sees that as something that makes him put confidence in himself. His ethnicity, his nationality, he's the right tribe. He had the, the right ritual for the real Jews and what he could identify himself as. He's a Hebrew and he's educated who he was individually, who he was as part of the community what he gave his life to, what he worked hard to do, some things by birth, some things by choice. He says, I put confidence in my flesh. So that's Paul. But I want to ask the question of us, like where where do you put your confidence? My guess is your list would sound different than, than Paul's. But we still have that mental list of things that make us confident in ourselves. What are you getting your confidence from? Is it your ability? Is it your skills? Is it your level of status? You kind of wake up and you go, I, I must have done something right. Look at this. Look what I've accomplished. I mean, something had, someone had to do something. These things did, didn't just happen. Where, where do you put your confidence? Is it in the dream job you landed or just even a job, or the security that that job provides, and you say, look, look at what I've been able to accomplish. Look at how secure I am. Is it that you are really, you're really nice, you're that kind of friend, and everybody knows you're that kind of friend, and that gives you a lot of confidence in yourself? Is it because while everybody else posts their highlight reel, on Facebook and on Instagram and shows everybody the world like 
they, are, they, they look really good in this, that, and the other. The truth is for you, like, you are that good. You do look that good. That is your image. There's no pretending, and you can look that good without any photoshopping. Does that give you confidence? Does it give you confidence that things are really in order and things are in control and you'll look at there and you'll look there? They don't have their act together, but things here, I've got them under control. I'm hitting my marks. I'm achieving my goals and things are going exactly the way I thought they would. Is it that that family that you've always dreamed of is a reality? And so you look around and you see harmony. Like it's meaningful. What you had hoped, what you had worked for, you got it. Everybody cares about every, everybody. No anger issues. No deep-seated bitterness. Everybody wants to be present at the family gatherings. Is that achievement that you've been pushing for? Is that spouse, that happy marriage where very few things go wrong? Many of these things, don't get me wrong, many of these things are good things. And they are worth pursuing. They are worth working to achieve. I'm just asking, where do you get your confidence from? And you say, well, Curtis, actually, I'm not getting my confidence from anything you just said because I, I, I don't have any of that. And I came in just almost crawling underneath the door because of how low I feel. You talk about family. I don't have that. You talk about spouse. I don't have that. I don't have the friends. I don't have the security. I, I have far from a dream job. But see, this works in a different way because sometimes it comes in the side door where, but if you did have it, then you would be confident. If you did have your act together, if you were in control of things, then you would feel like, then I would be somebody. Then people would have to listen to me. People would have to notice me. People would have to recognize me. And in that, just kind of in an inverse way, you're putting confidence in the flesh. Where's your confidence today? What's amazing to me is Paul came to the conclusion that in the flesh, everything he had or ever could have placed his confidence in, actually he, he says that doesn't even compare to Christ. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, whatever gain I had. So he just talked about his trophy case. I mean, all these achievements. And he says, yeah, whatever gain I had, I actually count as loss for the sake of Christ. Notice the comparison. He says there really isn't one. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of Christ, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Do you notice the language of evaluation? So we have loss and we have loss and we have gain and we have count. We have suffered the loss and we have rubbish. I mean, Paul is comparing things. He is giving us a, even accounting terms and saying credits and loss and what all did we have? What has been achieved? And he begins to walk through those things. He says, in the end, the virtues that I thought were my assets, I count those as loss. Everything I've achieved in the flesh, I count that as loss. By the way, this is no like hypothetical, he's not playing mind games here. Because he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. I've experienced it. I've watched it all go away. I've watched those things that I, I, I counted on, like, this is my trophy case, this is how privileged I am, this is my accomplishments. I've watched that amount to nothing. I've seen it happen, Paul is saying. I've suffered the loss of everything. 
So I take all these achievements, and by comparison, I'm looking at them as loss. Imagine if after the service we were to talk back in the back, and you, I were to say, I, I'd, like, I'd like to have you come with me to my office because I'd like to show you something. And as we walk over to my office, I begin to tell you, this thing I, I'm going to show you, it means, like, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to say how much it means to me. It's worth so much to me. Like, I base my life on this. I depend on this. This is where I get my strength, my energy. This is what wakes me up in the morning. Imagine we were to come into my office and sitting on my desk was this trophy about this high. It said like fourth grade basketball champions. I said, that's it. That's it. Do you see it? This means everything to me. In four weeks in fourth grade, our team won. I was on the winning team. I just want you to see that trophy. I want you to feel how much this matters to me. Because I, I don't make a decision without thinking about this. You begin to wonder what's going on, right? I mean, you begin to, you'd, like, seriously. Is he okay? Is this some kind of joke? And beyond the humor of it, you'd say, like, this is seriously, like, there's a problem. Like, I understand that this would have mattered to him in fourth grade. And it did matter, and we did win. This is not hypothetical. We did win. <laughs> but you could understand. Like, I, I understand that means a lot to you, but then you, you look around in my office, and there's my Bible, and I didn't say that. And there's a picture of Shauna, and I, I didn't point to that. And there's a picture of my kids, and I didn't point to that. And there's a picture of my dad, and I didn't point to that. And you say, Curtis, like, you know what would be the best thing for me to do probably at this moment is to take this trophy you're so proud of? I think we need to get rid of it. Like, you, you have a distorted view of reality. If you're saying this matters to you that much, you'd be doing me a favor. By saying in comparison, how do you, how would you, how do you even see that is the most valuable thing in your life? It's interesting, Paul uses the word loss and loss, and then he uses this most crass of words. So we get, we get the translation rubbish, which I hear that and I think of like British programming where you hear it and it sounds nice and kind of cute that they use that word instead of trash, but there's really nothing cute about this word. As a matter of fact, the King James would translate it dung, and that's probably exactly where it needs to be translated. There's just a lot of not-so-nice words that I'll spare you. But whether it's street filth or those things that we actually don't want to see. So, again, without being too crass, no one's really interested in what happens to what gets flushed down the toilet. You're glad not to think about that anymore. It, it, it's over. There's no meaning to that. And Paul is, Paul is saying that that. It, it matters so little to me, all these things that I achieved. So here's the question, what are the trophies? I mean, there's a silly, silly little story of a, a fourth grade trophy, but what are the trophies? What are the identity markers that we walk in that give us confidence? And what, what means everything to us? And are we willing, are we willing, even willing to let those things be evaluated? Or we say, don't touch that, because that means a lot to me. And then we're forced to bring out the ledger. 
and I'm forced to say, how much would it measure up if I lost this? What looks like an asset to me, what may even be God's gift to me, does it compare like his trash or refuse if I were to compare like Paul does? There's a really important question that comes out of that comparison. Because some of the things that he named are actually good things. So here's the important question. Why is there no comparison? Why is there no comparison? I mean, he's named good things. He's named valuable things. And you could name good things that really matter to you, that, that give you confidence. Why is there no comparison? What we'd have to say is there better be something on the other side that is affecting the equation, making Paul think there is no comparison. There better be something else in the ledger if we're doing gain and loss. There better be something else that says the suffering, uh, suffering the loss of everything really wouldn't be that devastating because I would still have this. And so we hear it. Paul says in verse 7, whatever gain I had counted, I count as loss. And here's why, for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So here we, here we see for Paul what's on the other side of the ledger. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Razor sharp clarity for Paul in the scale of evaluation for the sake of Christ the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, gaining Christ, being found in Christ. And then he points to something else in the next verses. He points to some important things. Everything else is worth so little. Because I, I, I don't have, I'm not found having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God. So here's what's in the ledger. Here's what's balancing out this and saying, actually, this is, is loss because this is so much better. There's no comparison. And that is the righteousness, the righteousness that comes from God. Everything else is worth so little, even when it's a gift from God, because it cannot give me the righteousness that comes from God. I think in this, confidence in the flesh is synonymous, pretty synonymous with righteousness, the righteousness of our own. And we like to be righteous. Humans are, I think we're just made to want to be righteous. Certainly there's a religious bent to it. And that we want to be right before God. But even those people, so you might be in here and say, well, Curtis, I actually don't buy into Christianity. I'm not sure about all things religious. I'd say even you desire to be right. You don't want people to be, to view you as like this person that's just really not morally right about a lot of stuff. And so we begin to look at righteousness that we can accrue to ourselves. For Paul, it was the law, but for us, us, there's often these other things that bring us righteousness, or at least we think does. I remember reading a book called The Gospel-Centered Life, and it began to unpack some different kinds of righteousness, some different kinds of things that say, I, I am morally a decent person. So one of those would be like mercy righteousness. goes something like this. I care about the poor. I care about the disadvantaged the way everybody else should. Or maybe it's loyalty righteousness. I feel like more people should be like me because I'm, I'm the kind of person that never turns their back on my friend, my family. I'm the person that people can count on. 
Or maybe it's respect righteousness. You respect authority and other people. You look around and everybody else seems to be rebels, but you are doing things the right way, showing respect to authority, because that's how you've been taught. That's what's important to you. You say, see, this is, this, is what, this is what it looks like to live the right kind of life. Or maybe it's purity righteousness. You stay clean in your life and in your body, and you don't do anything that anybody could consider as unholy or impure. And in that, you, you've gone a long time in that, and you see, like, I'm... I'm righteous. Or maybe it's justice righteousness. You stand up for the fair thing. Too many people don't care anymore, but you do. Or maybe it's open-minded righteousness. You're open-minded and charitable towards those who don't agree with you, and you recognize, boy, the world would be a lot better place more people were like you and how open-minded you are. We could keep going. I think you've got the idea. It's the righteousness that depends all on us. And that feels good, but that breaks down. Why is that insufficient to manage life with? Why is that kind of righteousness not enough? It's never enough. It wasn't for Paul. It won't be for us. Why? Because we can never even live by the standard of righteousness that we set for ourselves. We can never live up to it. Eventually, we fail. I can have like a career righteousness where I've, I'm pretty proud of all that I've accomplished, but, but, but I'm, in, I'm so not in control of lots of other things, and in a moment, the career righteousness that I've held in such high esteem could be up in smoke. And what if, what if, and this certainly was true for Paul, what if you're basing your righteousness on the wrong thing? What if you turn out to be horribly wrong? You were righteous in how open-minded you were, but there was this other kind of righteousness that that really mattered for eternity. A righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Paul said that counts very little. For us, it, I don't know how we fill in the blank. A righteousness of my own that comes from my family, my career, my decision making, my, my bent toward justice, my loyalty, my purity. But there is another kind of righteousness. Paul says, and this comes from God. It comes from God through faith in Christ Jesus. That is God crediting us with righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, how it's said. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is righteousness outside of us, not inside of us, based on our good intentions, but this is outside of us that we become righteous. Notice Romans 3.21, and I'll read out of the New Living Translation because I think it makes some of these passages come alive, especially this one here. It says, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, whatever law you want to play with. And this was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God, listen to verse 22, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God indeed was being fair or righteous when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. He was looking ahead and including in them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his 
righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Why could Paul make such sweeping statements about how little things matter to him? Why could he say, I can endure loss? Because you could take everything away from him. But he was, if he was found with Christ's righteousness, he was going to be okay. Eternity would be all right. His life would be worth living. You could take it all away. He could experience the loss of all things. But you couldn't take that away. That he had this declaration that he was righteous. I wonder sometimes if we make this so transactional, we miss another important thing Paul's saying in this passage. Sometimes I, th- I think we just kind of treat this as if, okay, so we have our sin and God has righteousness and we just kind of swap in this great transaction. Well, that's a good deal. All about the spiritual deal there. So Christ gets the cross, we get new life, he has pain, we, we don't have to worry about hell. We get a better life. Hey, well, sign me up for that too often. I wonder if that's how I presented it. And too often, I wonder if that's how I've thought about it, that it's just this great transaction. But for Paul, it's not merely transactional. Paul could say so much more than that. He would say, that is true. There is this great transaction where I do get the righteousness of Christ, even as he suffered for my sin. But he would go further. He would say, everything else is worth so little, even when it is a gift from God, because it cannot give me Not just a righteousness from God, but a relationship with Christ. So for Paul, it wasn't merely a transaction. It was a relationship. Did you not hear how Paul was saying that? Like, I want to know Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Like, it's a relationship. It's a highly relational word, this word of knowledge, like knowing knowing Christ. That's highly experiential. It'll go beyond religious formalism and duty. Because I want to know him. I want to know this person. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know what that's all about, experiencing the power that was manifested in and arises from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That kind of power where nothing stood in its way, not even the world, though the world seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. You see, the power of Christ, where not even the world could kind of box God in. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to know the power of of the resurrection when it comes to fighting sin and Satan. I want to know what it means as, as Jesus rises from the dead and puts Satan underneath his feet. I want to know the power of what it means to resist sin and be faithful to the Lord. I want to know the power of his resurrection, even my own flesh no longer living as slaves to a sinful nature, but in, in fear and death of, of judgment. But in Christ, I want to know what it's like to experience freedom and deliverance. Paul says it's not just a transaction. I want to know him. So you take everything away, all the things I once counted as gain, you take them away, and it would hurt, and it would, be, it would sting, and it would be a loss. But if I still had Christ, if I still woke up in the morning and he was there, if I still knew he would never leave me or forsake me, 
If I still knew he would walk with me through the valley of the shadow of death. If I still knew that everything else may melt, but he would be the friend that would stick closer than a brother. If I still knew I could pray to him and he would intercede for me, then you could, you could take it all. And I, I would actually count that as loss if I knew I could gain him. This is what Paul is saying, this relationship. And he says, I, I want to I know something about the power of his resurrection, but I also want to know something about his sufferings. I want to participate. I want to have fellowship in his sufferings. So what Paul is not saying is, I want to know Jesus, and then Jesus will kind of become the insurance and the buffer around my life so nothing bad could ever happen to me. He says, I want to walk with Christ even as he suffers. I'll, I'll take the cross because I want to be made like him in his death. Paul's crying out. I want to be molded in the shape of his death. I, I, I want to be modeled like, like him. I want to be conformed to him. Such humility setting aside any of our rights or our entitlement. I want to be like him. Such obedience even to the point of death on the cross. So just give it all away. If I could, if I could have him, if I could know him, if I could have a relationship with him. That's why the, the hymns that we sing pour this out. One hymn says, my richest gain I count but loss. I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the empty things, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature, if I had it all, if I had all the power, all the money, all the comfort, all the pleasure, all the authority, if I had it all, were the whole realm of nature mine, even taking all that and wrapping it up as a present or an offering to the Lord, that would just be far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all, everything I've got. That is exactly what Paul's describing. So the question, why could Paul make such sweeping statements about how little things mattered to him? Because he knew he had a relationship with Christ. Paul brought us into his thinking and comparing. I wonder how you're evaluating things. What does it mean to you to know Christ? What does that compare to? What matters to you? I know something does, because you're human. Something matters to you. You would trade. You'd trade pleasure. You'd trade comfort. You'd trade approval because something else mattered. You would do that. We do that. So what's, what is it? What is it? Is it that relationship? Do you even have one? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Maybe it's so appealing to you to know that a person would walk with you, would never leave you. I, I, I believe you can walk out of here without a shadow of doubt in your mind that, that the Lord is with you, that he is in you, that he is for you. Maybe it's the fact that you actually do have that relationship. You've had it for a long time. It's just when Paul uses terms like surpassing worth, honestly, you couldn't use that. Because there's lots of other trophies that matter to you a lot more. Lots of other things you put your confidence in. Lots of other things that you get righteousness from. Maybe it's the, the righteousness from God. Are you certain that you have it? And ask if you're trying to be the best person you can be. Are you certain 
that you have a righteousness that does not depend on you, but that depends on Christ, that comes from God, that you put your faith in what He's done. Again, you may have it. But maybe it's been a while since you really put your whole confidence in it and treasured it. I relish the stories. I relish the stories of that prodigal son that God says, you know, come back and meets. But I relish another emphasis in Scripture. The people who are distant from God in their self-righteousness. That God begins to hammer and hammer and hammer away at that. And you come back to him. You go, I may lose everything. But if I have your righteousness and I have a relationship with you, I'd count it all as loss. Can I ask you to bow your head? Can we take a moment? In a moment, we'll sing. And the song, honestly, will be taken right from the words of Philippians 3. But can you take hard inventory, maybe for the next minute or so, and see where is it? Where's the gain column? Where's the loss column? Where do changes need to be made?